You are listening to the Enormo Cast. I've been obsessing with the name Otaki since Sportiva released the slick blue shoe a couple years ago. Rhymes with Suvlaki. In Japanese, it apparently means cascade. And there's an old Maori town in New Zealand called Otaki. What exactly are you up to, Sportiva? So in the spirit of etymological adventure, I started climbing in them despite my unsavory fetish for the caress of a slightly worn pair of miras. Mm. And I gotta say, for sport climbing and really techie trad, I'm sold. I'm also sold on the name of the only color choice, Blue Flame. Cha-cha! But mostly, I smile at the comfort-to-performance ratio. Like any tightly fit shoe, a pair of otakes are not exactly a lavender bubble bath, but of course with Sportiva's dedication to the craft, the otakis slide on without any annoying stitch bumps and hot spots and remain tight where it matters. So if you want performance, perfect fit, and a shoe that rhymes with savory skewered meats, check out the otaki at sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. Kaliarexi. Does your neck hurt playing someone else's project? Does your partner get in way over his head even on the warm-ups? Does the phrase, I'll just do this move one more time, make your eyeballs spin? Then let Belay Specs fight for you. When my boyfriend started falling lower and lower on his project, Belay Specs saved my neck and got me a new boyfriend. Belayer neck pain, also known as BNP, can interfere with work, play, family, and snapping your head around at the gym to check out those abs. And you have rights, which are being crushed every time your partner yells take. So if your neck has been injured in an epic belay session, go to belayspecs.com to see if you qualify for a pair of belay specs and to get what you deserve. Entry Normacast at checkout for a discount. Belay Specs is not licensed to give legal advice to anyone. Results may vary by steepness. If belay Specs cause you to trip, fall down, run into a door, nausea, climb up, you're probably too high to climb to begin with. All right, are we good? We done here? Does anybody want to get a beer? Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place outside of town. Very That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that? out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Galoos. It is September 15th, 2019, about 10.30 at night here in Colorado, and this is episode 183 of the Enormacast, a conversation with legend Jim Donini. And I don't think I've gotten more requests for anybody else to be on the show, and I, I don't know exactly why it's taken so long, frankly, but you know, things just have to line up and 
I got in touch with Jim recently, and he was totally game. And so we finally sat down this summer at the trade show. This one's been sitting in the hopper for a little bit, partially because I was waiting for him to come back from yet another trip to the Karakorum to release it. Not sure why. Could have been released while he was gone. But yeah, he turned 76 in Pakistan this year on uh, on an expedition, which is, you know, that alone is reason to talk to a guy. But he's got a 55-year climbing career. And, you know, I kind of think of him as sort of this blue-collar alpinist. He has just been banging it out, getting it done for so long. It's, you know, it's like the mailman. He's just there delivering all the time year after year after year, and he's revered by multiple generations of alpinists. I think his reputation was originally sealed by being one of the early climbers down in Patagonia, at least early after the era of the big expeditions with support crews and things like that, when just a couple guys, a couple, three guys would go down there and basically sit in the woods for six, eight, weeks or longer waiting for weather to get up on those things uh, before El Shaltan existed, before there was really any climbing scene whatsoever down there. Uh, Jim was down there um, and did a very important first ascent of Torrey Egger, which revealed the lie that was the original ascent of Saratore. But he's got a vast resume all over the world, concentrating in the Karakoram in Pakistan, Alaska, uh, but he's got first ascents on every continent. So the guy's just been there banging it out forever. A lot of wisdom, but he's also a pragmatist. And uh, his frankness was actually really rewarding at the end of this interview. I thought that I'd sat down with a guy that doesn't put up with much bullshit, uh, which was actually really cool. And um, and I spoke with Jim this morning. I wanted to get an update about his expedition to the, to the Karakoram this summer. And he returned safely, but they did have one incident where a climber was choppered out with uh, injury, expected to make full recovery. And like so many expeditions, they got there, the weather was good, then it turned to crap, and they didn't get a lot done. But Jim did have a birthday cake up there on the glacier, turning 76. So congratulations to you, Mr. Donini. And I hope you guys uh, dig this one as much as I did when I recorded it. When you think about it, is there another gear company so dedicated to outfitting climbers from head to toe as Black Diamond? They've got lightweight modern helmets and headlamps for your pointy head, high-performance apparel to wrap that sweet climber bod you've been cultivating, all the way down to their line of advanced climbing shoes for those tender piggies. They've got crash pads for the pad sniffers, the best protection money can buy for the trad dads, ice tools for the masochists. Pitons, haul bags, portal ledges, backpacks, draws, beaners, harnesses, tents, probes, skis, poles, and even the signature Enormacast rhinestone-studded unisex microfleece G-string. Well, no, that doesn't exist yet, despite me stuffing the suggestion box every chance I get. Hit me up, BD. That's money just sitting on the table. So next time you're shopping for, well, nearly anything a climber could want, honor the generations of weary Black Diamond engineers pouring over AutoCAD in their cubicles when they'd much rather be climbing. And go to blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop to see the fruits of their dedicated labor. And remember, Black Diamond is a proud sponsor of the Enormacast. All right, so you have a trip coming up, and that we're at the Outdoor Retailer <laughs> Show, and, and uh, you came down to uh, make some connections and, and get ready for this trip. So what do you have coming up? Well, you know, I went last year to the Karakoram, and I've fallen back in love with the Karakoram. 
1978, of course, you know, I went there with Jeff Lowe, George Lowe, and Michael Kennedy. We had our epic climb on Latok, and uh, <clears throat> still one of the most memorable climbs in my in my career. And even though we didn't summit, I think it was uh, in some ways the most memorable climb I've ever done. To me, alpine climbing is the body of work you do, is the climbing that you do. And you always want that to end in a summit. But if it doesn't end in a summit, it's the body of work you've done to get to that point that makes the climb. So when you do 98% of a climb and you have to come down for the reasons that we did, to me, it wasn't a failure. It was a failure to get to, it was, uh, we didn't get to the top. But the uh, 26 days we shared and the getting back down alive, all four of us, you know, is crystal, still crystal clear in my mind. And it's, you know, it was it was the most emotional, the most difficult in terms of um, what it did to my body. It took me a year to recover. And uh, it, I really learned a lot about partnerships and how incredibly important they are in alpine climbing. Well, anyway... Thomas Huber has become a good friend because he has been trying to put the finishing touches on the north side of Latok. And in 2016, he invited me to go there and uh, hang out and spend some time. And I got George Lowe to go, two of the Latok teams. So we went. And then George and I had a third climber with us, Tom Engelbach from Boulder, younger guy. And uh, <clears throat> we almost did the, uh, a new route on a 20,000-foot peak nearby while they were working on Latok. And I fell back in, <clears throat> back in love with that Cirque, the Latok Cirque. You know, to me, I've been on seven continents. I've been to 60 countries. I've been in the, a lot of mountain areas. And the most beautiful, incredible Cirque in, on the planet is the Latok Ogre Cirque. Second would be the uh, Tory uh, Fitzroy Cirque. Right. And you have these Latok 3 marching together, Latok 3, Latok 1, Ogre 2, and the Ogre. And those peaks, they're shoulder to shoulder. They comprise the most difficult climbing, alpine climbing in the world, the most difficult peaks to get to the summit by any route. And, you know, I, I'm there thinking, God, I'd like to get my wife to go and see this place. She's a good rock climber, but she doesn't do the alpine or the, that, that sort of climbing. So I thought what I'll do is I'll put together a trek. So I did. And in uh, 2017, I got 20 people to sign up for a trek. I designed it to go up the Biafo Glacier. I've been part way up to Biafo with Jack Tackle in 1993 when we nearly did the first ascent of Uzumbrak. But it hadn't been past that point. So we, the idea was to go all the way up to Biafo, to Snow Lake, cross Snow Lake, up over Simla Pass, and down into the Lake Tok Cirque and out. It's a 200-kilometer trek. And uh, on the way out, I was timed it to meet uh, Tomas and his team and spend. And then the rest, the rest of the uh, trekkers were going out. I was going to stay behind for a couple of weeks, which is what I did. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, get these people signed up. And little did I know, I had done a lot of that trek, but I hadn't done the Snow Lake, the Upper Biafo, Simla Pass. And if I had known what that was going to be like, I probably wouldn't have done it. But nobody died. Nobody even got hurt. <laughs> but it was sketchy. Right. It was sketchy. It wasn't uh, a, a trek like in Nepal where you have a tea house every so often sure. and you have groomed trails. In fact, uh, two of the people with me... Uh, 
Tim and Laura Kudo are good climber skiers, and they've been on a couple treks. And uh, they did the Annapurna uh, Sanctuary Trek and the Everest Base Camp Trek. And they said, you know, those are like bunny slopes. Your trek was a double black diamond. Right. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I got to the Upper Biafo, and I went, oh, my God. I started looking at all the uh, Usum uh, Sulambrak and uh, the Solo Towers and Broad Tower. All these towers are next to each other on a flat glacier where you can have a base camp on dirt, on terra firma, and walk across a flat glacier and have a 3,000-foot ice climb or rock climb right there. Uh And a lot of it hadn't been done. I said, okay, I'm going to design a a trip for next year where it's going to be a climber's camp. Because it's only a four-day march. It would have been five days for trekkers, but four days for climbers to go from a scully to where I was going to, you know, where I wanted to put the base camp. Right. So that's what I've done. Okay. So we're going to go in a few weeks, and we, I've got eight climbers. And the idea was we're sharing all the base camp, and we have a. Uh, it's going to be a palatial base camp with a cooking tent and eating tent and chairs and tables. And then we'll have four teams of two, and we just go out and have at it. Right. We'll be in base camp for five weeks. Sick. And I got four, uh, eight climbers to sign up. That's four teams of two. So you've got like, I mean, it's like cragging in the. In well, the, in the, in the, I yeah, mean, not well, like you know, not as simple you, as that, but it sounds like yeah, you can have it, multiple objectives, do different things over the five weeks. Right. Well, you know, there's uh, like Jay Smith's going, and uh, he has a younger partner. We all. We're all Jay and myself, and then, you know, we're all in the, uh, we always have younger partners because we can't find anybody our age. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To pick on. That's already happening to me, and I'm <laughs> only 48. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, there's everything from all capsized uh, rock climbs. There's a beautiful looking 2,500 foot ice runnel. And then there's a couple peaks, Sulambrak and Nuzumbrak. Are sixty five hundred meter peaks. They're just under sixty five hundred meters, which is like twenty one. Mm-hmm. And if you're just under sixty five hundred meters, you don't need a climbing permit. Okay. And these are they each been done only once. A Japanese team on Sulambrak and a Slovenian team on Uzumbrak. So there's still new new routes to do on those bigger peaks, and then there's uh, first ascents to do in these towers. Right. So it looks pretty awesome. Yeah, it looks. It sounds. It sounds amazing. Yeah, but you know, I, last year when I I told my wife, okay, you know, I turned seventy five on the trek last year. Okay, I'm turning seventy six on this climb, and I'm thinking, you know, maybe I don't know anyone else my age is crazy enough to. Yeah, a lot of people my age rock climb, but uh, doing alpine climbing. So I said, am I am I, am I fooling myself? And I told my wife when I did the trek, you know, it's probably the last time I go to uh, the Karakoram, but lo and behold, I'm down in Patagonia. We spend the winters down there. I have a little house in Patagonia. I'm thinking, you know, I feel pretty good. And then one more year. Okay. So I, I put this together and I told my wife, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be there gone for seven weeks. And then next year we'll go to Europe, but we'll do maybe go to Africa. <laughs> And that was a promise, but again, I promised her the same thing to you last right. year. Yeah, is it in writing anywhere? Have you, have you signed any sort of contract? Writing, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, a tablet of blood, right. with, um, you know, my blood on a tablet. Right. No, it's not. It's not in, it's written that down anywhere in blood. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Right. One year at a time. Well, what's the? I guess we'll get into a, uh, that. Kind of leads me to a, a bigger question in my mind is is uh, you know what is it that's continuing to drive you to to do these these mountains and you know 
put yourself at risk again and uh you know yeah. what what are the why are the dreams keep coming in terms of these big peaks in your mind have you ever have you ever are you the kind of person that that reflects on uh the sort of mountain addiction or anything like that i don't reflect on it uh per, but i i do reflect on it because people ask me all the time yeah. because of when you're a certain you know i don't i can't find people 10 years younger than me that are doing what i'm doing and they, I, people wondering, you know, I'm a barometer for people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think I'm the uh, tip of the iceberg of what's happening in, in the way we treat aging. You know, years ago, people said, okay, you, at a certain age, you stop doing a certain thing and you, you know, get on with your life. You don't do that because you're at a certain age. Sure. We're not looking at that now. People, they're older and older people climbing really hard. Right. Rob Carrington, you know who he is? No. He's a British climber that uh, started the company Rab. Okay, yeah. And I climbed sure. with him in Patagonia in the early 70s. He's a little bit younger, but he sold Rab. He was always a good climber, but he started this company in England and he got really involved with it. And when he was 58, he sold the company. And then he, all of a sudden, he had time to train. So when he was 60, he did his first 8A. Oh, right on. At 60, because he was able to train. And uh, so we're, we're treating, treating aging differently. And we're and and I'm out there, sort of the barometer for people because uh, they're younger than me, and they're going, "Well, if you can do it, maybe I have a few more years." Sure. But you know, I never would have thought twenty years ago that at seventy-five I'd be going back to the Karakoram. You know, maybe in a trekking way, but to go climbing. Mm-hmm. But every year, you know, I feel okay, and I I I think that it, I've been blessed with. A genetic situation where I've never had a joint issue. I have zero issues with my hips, my knee, and all. You know, Jay Smith is still a super strong climber, but he has arthritis, so he's he's had two shoulder surgeries, back surgery, and that really limits and slows people down. And uh, you know, slows them down. They can't train because they're you know, coming back from surgery, and then when people can't train, not Jay, he's different. He's still going strong. But all of a sudden, they put on a few pounds, cause, and then and it's hard to get back into the fray. Right. I've never had that issue. I can still run down a hill with a pack on, and my knees don't hurt. Wow. So I That's think- That's amazing. I, I look at three things. Uh, <laughs> that um, There's genetics, there's lifestyle, and there's luck. And only one of those things you can control is your lifestyle. Right. You can be blessed- with great genetics and have a shitty lifestyle. We know who they are. <laughs> right. And that's not good. Or you can have really good lifestyle and all of a sudden, you know, something happens because of genetics. So I, I, the genetic part for me is my joints. I haven't, uh, they haven't flared up. I mean, I, and I've never been injured. Okay. I mean, that's a, that's a good run. <laughs> yeah, that's the luck. <laughs> yeah, that's the luck, right. And the other thing, you know, surviving as many expeditions, maybe 40 ex- real expeditions over the years, mm-hmm. and still being here when so many people have come to grief, well, I think that that's partly because of judgment and, and planning, but let's face it, if you're going to uh, push the alpine envelope that long in those kind of places, no matter how good you are at judging the route and the objective dangers therein, or planning your your route, you need a little bit of luck too, because mm-hmm. we all know some of the people that have passed on that had super good judgment. Alex Lowe comes to mind, mm-hmm. and just was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. So a little luck has to become, you know, 
it has to play in there. Yeah, I mean, or, or, or a lot. I mean, it's it, it feels like, you know, th- there's been a lot of talk about how there's it's a little bit of a roll of the dice and putting yourself in the the realm, you know, in the well, arena yeah. over and over again, you know, sort of lessens your odds, and yet here you are, someone who's pr- who's been in the arena yeah. <clears throat> almost nonstop, right, for it, well, however many years. Yeah, and. Um, you know, you look at that Ciroc and you go, it's pretty, it doesn't look like it, anything comes off that very often, but you know, it does. And I'm only going to be under for half an hour and, and you know, roll the dice a little bit. And mm-hmm. But you have to uh, be reasonable about picking routes. Right. Because obviously there's some routes that have such high objective danger that if you kept doing those kinds of routes, you're not going to be around for very long. Right. So I always try and pick a line that makes some sense. But then I always know that, you know, people ask me if I had a close call, certainly. And uh, probably my closest call is one I don't even know about. Right. I was probably standing someplace and walked around a ridge and then where I was standing was hit by a Serac. I don't know. Sure. You know, you never know. And uh, but here I am. And, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I never worry about alpine climbing because I think that uh, I think that I plan it to the point where I, I i look at the route and i think okay that's a good line and has reasonable objective dangers and I, I pick the time i'm going to do it and i think that i've got everything so prepared that i'm, I'm not nervous about the climb mm-hmm. i sometimes get more nervous about climbs that have already been done because then i'll hear about for example years ago when i first started climbing in, in yosemite in 1971 I, I did an early center of the South Bay Wall. I was a, a, a budding new wall climber. And the South Bay Wall in 1971 hadn't been done that many times. And I remember as a young climber hearing that Leighton Core had been in the ear pitch and freaked out in the ear because it was a Bombay chimney. Well, I went with a friend of mine who was a de-age specialist, and I was the free specialist. So I did most of the free climbing pitches, and he did most of the aid pitches. So I knew all the way that I had to, to, to lead the ear. Mm-hmm. And you can see it looming above you, you know, as you're climbing up. It took us a couple of days to get there. And all the time I'm thinking, oh, God, there's the year. It's getting closer. Right. Leighton Core freaked out. You know, and I get into the year and it's anticlimactic. There's actually gear that you can get. And it was easy. Yeah, it's not But all bad. the way up, I'm yeah. dreading it because of what I heard. Right. Now, if you're doing a first ascent, <laughs> you, you would don't have know. no idea, right? So it's actually less scary to do first ascents because you don't know what you're getting into. And then right. when you get to something... You deal. I always tell people the less the fir- uh, first ascents. I've been on forty expeditions, and I only once tried something that had been done before. Every okay. other time, it's been try the first ascent. Right. And the reason for that is, you know, you're going to spend that time and money and energy, and you buy the plane ticket to go someplace. You might as well try something. That, and the reason I got into climbing is I wanted to explore. And the things is, you you can make a reputation for yourself pretty easily by doing obscure first ascents. And first of all, it's uh, it's far less embarrassing to fail on a first ascent than to fail on a climb that's already been done. <laughs> Secondly, people think, oh, my God, a first ascent. And it can get uh, some credibility, even if it's not very hard. And if you make it real obscure so nobody can find it, it'll never get a second ascent. Right. <laughs> and then it'll have a reputation. Right. <laughs> maybe warranted, maybe unwarranted. Maybe, maybe right? not. Right. Well, I can't remember exactly where that starts, but it was, it's around, you it was know. It's 5982. 
<laughs> or whatever, a five nine eight two water ice, whatever. But if you get there and you do the first pitch, then it must and you can do the first pitch. It must not be the route I did, <laughs> right? <laughs> Clearly. Um, well, let me ask you a, a little bit different question. Yeah. From the one about like what keeps drawing you back to mountains. Let's go back to the beginning. What uh, what drew you to climbing into mountains in the first place? Well, people they'll ask me. They'll say, "Where did you grow up?" My answer is, "I didn't." Uh huh. But I was raised in Philadelphia. <laughs> well, you know, I said I didn't grow up. I'm a right. climber. What right. the hell? I, that's. A, but I was raised in Philadelphia, and um, my father was a history professor, and he was really and he got me reading books on exploration, and I read a lot of books on exploration as a kid, and here I am a kid in Philadelphia. I was born in 1943. Mm-hmm. In 1953, I didn't know anything about climbing. We would go down to the Jersey Shore for vacations, and there were no mountains around. But I remember hearing that uh, um, Hillary and, uh, and Tenzing had climbed the first ascent of Everest. And I remember thinking, damn, I wanted to be the first. <laughs> I was 10 years old. <laughs> and uh, so I, I was reading these books about exploration. I always wanted to be an explorer, but I thought, you know, it's 1950. Uh, it's all been explored. And uh, I found that when I finally did get into climbing, it was a way of fulfilling my exploratory urge on a microcosmic way. I could put my, I could be somewhere no one's ever been before. Even if it was just a ridge on a mountain, I could sleep somewhere where no one has ever slept before. I could put my hands into a crack where no hand has ever gone before. But that came later. I wasn't really thinking about that. I just was really into exploring. Mm -hmm. Then I went to, uh, college and i i went on a track scholarship i was a middle distance runner and a uh, summer after my freshman year i was coming back from the poconos which are where they're called mountains in pennsylvania with some friends late at night and i fell asleep and hit the hit a bridge and two of my friends were killed in the car accident i was the driver i was knocked out by the accident but not badly injured so i was 19 years old i felt horrible about it so i quit school and joined the army I get in the army, and at that time, I wanted. So now that I've joined the army, I want to do something interesting. And there was something that had just been developed in the last few years. It was special forces, the Green Berets, mm-hmm. counterinsurgency. So I applied for that and I got into special forces, and I became um, a member of a, uh, a special forces A detachment, twelve man unit that did the real stuff. And we were in North Carolina at Fort Bragg, nineteen sixty four training for a special uh, mission in Africa, our 12-man team, and we had two British SAS guys training with us. That British SAS was their equivalent to special forces. And we're back, I think, in the Linville Gorge area in North Carolina where nobody really climbed then. And one day we woke up and the, um, these two Brits had put up a top rope on a cliff. First time they ever been on a rope. And they spent the afternoon top roping in a little remote cliff somewhere near Linville Gorge in North Carolina. And I go, wow, this is really neat. And I had a natural feel for the rock, rock climbing. The, the Brits said, hey, you, you could be a good climber. And uh, I just kind of filed that away. And two years later, when I got out of the Army, went back to school, I said, I'm going to check out climbing. Went on the World Wide Web. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I got into climbing then right. and uh, changed my life. Where did you go to school? Where did you go back when you went? LaSalle to University in Philadelphia, okay. where my father was a professor at okay. that school. And uh, and it took me a few years to, to uh, graduate uh, because I started taking time off to go 
climbing. And I started in the Schwangunks, and then I ended up migrating to the Tetons, and and uh, I never looked back. Right. Kind of an interesting contrast to think about being in the Army. Yeah. You know, this regimented world, and then, like, stepping into the world of climbers, which, you know, at that time would have been real counterculture, bohemian kind of thing. Was that interesting to you, or... Well, you know... Did you bring um, your training from the from from the army into the way you I was in climbing. a very special outfit right we were allowed to grow our hair a little longer we 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 were a 12 man a detachment operational mm-hmm. detachment we had this incredible camaraderie we went on a couple of missions together and then uh it was the early years of vietnam and i made sergeant and um and they i was getting ready at the end of my three-year enlistment and my team was getting ready to be sent to vietnam and uh, they asked me to extend my enlistment to go and to make me a staff sergeant. And, and I, I thought, you know, God, I, I had such uh, a camaraderie with these guys. I almost did it. Right. But I decided in the last minute to go back to school. They went to Vietnam, but they, went, and they ended up going to Laos, Cambodia. Three of them were killed out of 12. And, um, you know, they were highly intelligent. It wasn't one of your average grunt. To get in right. special forces, it's more, you have to pass three or four uh, tests on, on, on uh, your mental acuity and your problem-solving ability. That's how you got in. Right. So we had – and it was a d- disparate group of people. One, one guy had uh, – <clears throat> was going to Cornell Law School, and, uh, and he was getting ready to get drafted. And he said instead of getting drafted, he joined because he wanted to get into something interesting. We had a neat group of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my time with Special Forces really helps my, help my alpine climbing because I learned a few things. I learned that the importance of preparation, of strategic train, uh, training, uh, you know, looking at the goal, the objective, and figuring out the best way to approach it, and then figuring out the preparation you needed to do in terms of the equipment, the uh uh, training you needed to do. But most importantly, what I learned was the importance of partnerships. The reason we had such camaraderie is because the 14, 12 people on that team watched each other's backs. They were really, you trusted everybody on your team. You, you trained with them. And you knew that, you know, for example, in climbing, in alpine climbing, it's multi-day uh, excursion, and you can't bring your A game out every day. Some days are bad days for you. So you want your partner, if you ha- you can't bring your A game, maybe they've got their A game and they can cover for you. So I have learned that, I, you know, I tell young climbers, they ask me, what are the most important things about becoming an alpine climber? I say, well, number one, you got to buy the plane ticket. Hmm. You got to commit. And then number two, you have to be able to embrace failure. Because, you know, a lot of times you're not going to get up, but you, you live to come back and, and do it, try it again. And number three, the most important thing is your partner. You know, I've, I've, uh, I've been climbing for half a century, and I've guided for Exum Guide Service. I've mentored a lot of young climbers. I've, t- I've done seminars on crack climbing. I've climbed with hundreds, maybe thousands of people uh, over the years. But when it comes to alpine, serious alpine climbing, over 50 years, I can count the number of people, partners I've had on the fingers of my two hands. Because the partnership, 
in an alpine uh, climb is the, the most critical and important thing. You want somebody that's going to cover for you or, or be with you, and, and you want somebody that has about the same level of commitment. You don't want somebody that's going to, when you know that you can keep going, not want to go down, but then you don't want somebody to, you, you know, it's a fine line between if you don't really push hard in alpine climbing, you don't get up. Right. But if you too, push too hard, you don't come back. Right. So where where is that line? We I don't know where it is, but so far I've been able to. Well, it depends on the climb, certainly. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I've had times when my partner and I both decided, well, it's time to go down. And it was probably the right thing to do. But right. we pushed hard. Right. Yeah, and the argument that can happen when one person either doesn't have the commitment or, or is maybe a little overstoked to keep going is probably a difficult thing as well. Right. Yeah. You know. Well, and also with, you know, uh, I, I feel like I was thinking about while you're talking incidences where, with my best partners where, you know, we're both we're both climbing along and this is rock climbing, but like in the black Canyon somewhere gnarly like that, you know? Yeah. And I'm thinking like, man, I'm really scared. And like, I don't know if this is going to go that well. And I'm not vocalizing that and he's not vocalizing it. But the moment I, you know, break face, if you will, and be like, yeah, I'm pretty gripped. Like, I don't know if we have the time and everything else. My best partners, it's like, Oh yeah. Me neither. I was thinking the same thing a minute ago. And like, yeah. <laughs> it's time to go down, you know, versus like the argument that could ensue about, right. you know, who's giving up too soon. But I just remember times where I'm just like, finally, like, I think this is not going great. And then instantly, oh, yeah, me neither. I've been I've been thinking that for the last two hours. Like, let's get out of here. You yeah, know, you want your partner to be on the same yeah. line level that you are. Mm -hmm. Not only in the, uh, the ability, but in commitment and uh, everything. Yeah, and, and understand when you're being serious as opposed to like that you need some, some pep talk or like need a little more. Yeah, and I'll find time yeah. you also want somebody you can live with for a while. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, you could have spent a lot quarters. of time down days in a right. tent staring at the counting the number of uh, right. little squares on the ripstop. Yeah. This storm pelts down above you and you want somebody that's fun to be with in base camp and that. So if you had a moment here to, to like, you know, give a shout out to, to who the best you've had are, who, who are we talking about? My climbing partners? Yeah. Well, it started with uh, my year early days in Patagonia with uh, John Bragg and mm -hmm. Jay Smith on, right. on, on Tori Egger. And then I had a long partnership with Jack Tackle in Alaska and uh, other places. And then George Lowe, Jeff Lowe, Michael Kennedy. Right. And... Uh, those have been, uh, you know, and then uh, Greg Crouch later on in mm -hmm. life when I met him and he's 24 years younger. We became, formed a great partnership and did a bunch of stuff in Patagonia, Alaska. And a uh, younger guy, Tom Engelbach, that I've climbed with. And those are some of my some of my partners. And maybe I'm forgetting. So yeah, Malcolm, no, Daly, right. Malcolm Daly, Malcolm right. Daly. And, uh, you know, there's just a few people. Right. And, uh, and I'm still... They're not all still here. Most of them are because they've had uh, some pretty good judgment, and I'm still friends with all of them. And um, and that's another important thing. You know, life's tough enough, right? And uh, one of the things that makes life easier is real friendships. And you want a, a partnership where it ends up being, hopefully, you get up a climb. But most importantly, is that uh, 
your friends after it. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're not bitter friends, about right. the situation. Right. The um what what about um you know, you mentioned earlier having to start recruiting younger guys and girls to uh to do some of these climbs with who yeah. who's impressed you, you know, more recently in your career that you've you've teamed up with? Well, I've teamed up with, uh, well, you know, uh, or, or even if you haven't teamed up with them, but you're just, you know, you, you know how they climb and, and, and what they're like in the mountains. You know, there was a period of time when I was like in my fifties and, and, uh, there seemed like that there was a, um, a period of time where the emphasis in America was on, on the new found sport climbing. Sure. And it seemed like younger climbers weren't really uh, getting into alpine climbing, and, and the alpine climbing was being done by the old guys who were getting older every year. And I thought, and then all of a sudden, this new wave hit this, hit this, and we've got so many good young alpine climbers now. And unfortunately, it's been a bad few years for some of them, uh, you know, uh, Hayden Kennedy and... Uh, uh, a number of other people Kyle that have and, come to Green Dempster, yeah. Scott Adamson. Right. You know, they go on and on. And look what just happened with Jesse Roskelly. And you know what's happening now, too, of course, is that climbers are better than ever because they know how to train more. And actually, there's more climbers. And it's more democratic. When I got into climbing in the fifth, uh, 60s, climbing was largely, in America, a university thing. And usually the elite universities, the Ivy League, Stanford, Berkeley, had all had outdoor clubs, and, and that's where all the climbers came from. And they all went to the same places, the Schwangunks, and then you went to the Tetons, and of course there was Yosemite. And uh, now, you know, with the advent of the climbing gyms, it's democratized climbing. It's opened up climbing to a lot of different groups of people. People that never would have gotten into climbing because they didn't go to university and go to an outing club, got uh, getting into climbing now. Some of them are great athletes. And uh, so, I, 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 you know, on the one hand, uh, my friends, a lot of my friends are <clears throat> curmudgeons. <laughs> and they go to Indian Creek, oh, how crowded it is now. And you know, even the Black Canyon is getting more crowded. And, yeah, that's happening. You know, I don't begrudge it, though. I mean, just, why? How can you begrudge? You know, just make it work. Because uh, to me, yeah, climbing is more crowded. It's harder to get camping. But I still can find remote places in the world where I can be by myself if I want to. And I love climbing so much. It's been so important to me for so much, so much of my life that I'm not going to begrudge someone else getting into climbing and making it a little bit more crowded for me. You know, you just brought up Indian Creek. And, and for me... You know, just being a rock climber uh, for the most part. Yeah. Like that place is a place where I, in my career, it's a place where I've climbed sort of steadily the longest and watched a place change. You know, talking yeah. about being a curmudgeon. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't there in the very earliest days. Yeah. But, but, you know, since the early 90s. Right. To now. So I've I've witnessed year after year the change. Some places I've climbed a long time ago and then I, I haven't been back or I haven't been back incrementally to watch it one place i was thinking about that with you is patagonia um yeah. having a house down there i'm um, having climbed there steadily since the 70s um so let's talk about a little bit about your relationship with patagonia all right well when it patagonia. started and, and and you know how it's continued over the years okay so i got into climbing 
largely because, well, my experience with special forces was, but once I got into it, I, I found that it fulfilled my exploratory urge mm-hmm. to be someplace no one's ever been before. If only it's on a new route somewhere. And, um, and I got to the Tetons early on. And uh, I ended up, you know, climbing guy for Exxon for about eight, seven or eight years. But I started climbing in Teton. And I met some um, climbers then who were better rock climbers. And I thought, oh, well, I better develop my rock climbing. So I went to Boulder, Colorado and worked a little bit on El Dorado. And then I gravitated to Yosemite. And I really, uh, I had a natural feel for crack climbing. And when I got there in 1970, it was the... <clears throat> the so-called golden age era was over, the big wall era, and now the new emphasis was on hard free climbing, relatively speaking. First 511s were going in, and uh, and I was a part of that re- uh, revolution of doing the harder free climbs. This is before cams, and we were, they were primarily on cracks, and it was on granite. And then I started reading about this place in Mountain Magazine that had these beautiful pictures of this towers, Patagonia. And I could see that it reminded me of the kind of, I figured, well, you know, I'm a pretty good granite crack climber now. And it looks like that's what you need to do to climb down there. So I, I, I went to Patagonia. The first time I was invited by a British team, Rab Carrington, Peter Minx, Alan Rouse, who I climbed with in Yosemite. And I got down there for, with them, but uh, we were had problems with logistics and never really got the climb. And the next year, I went down with uh, John Bragg, and, and uh, we almost did the versus Senesero Stanhart. And then I went down the next year with John Bragg and Jay Wilson. We did do the versus Senator Egger. And in those days, when you went to the uh, Fitzroy Tory Massif, you were in a wilderness. It was hard to get to it. The roads were dirt, and there was no bridges across the rivers. You you would drive up to a one of the rivers in uh, like the uh, Santa Cruz River and wait for a little car ferry to bring you across. And then when you got into the end of the road, the road ended. There was no bridge across the Rio Fitzroy, and now there's a bridge there on the other side of that on a big field is uh, El Chaltan. Right. When I first went there, that field was completely vacant, not a single house. There were a few uh, small estancias nearby, and they didn't build on, on this uh, field because there's two valleys that come down to it. It's a natural wind tunnel. It's not hospitable. And we had to wade across the Rio Fitzroy every time we went into the mountains, and we camped back in the mountains. It was a, it was a wilderness. And I was there for three months working on Torrey Egger because the weather was so bad. And during that time, we didn't see a single other climbing team, and we had two German Trekkers came in over a three-month period, only two. Now there's hundreds and hundreds every day. So uh, that that has changed. You know, Al Shultan now, I call it the Chamonix of Patagonia. And uh, I haven't been there for several years. I, where we have our house is a little bit north on the east side of the uh, North Patagonia ice cap. I call it undiscovered Patagonia. It's still... Not like the old days, but there's still a lot of little remote valleys you can go back into. You'd be the first person into those valleys. So what I do there now is more exploring with climbing at the end. The But the exploring is more almost more important than the actual climb. Mm-hmm. Some people, uh, I remember I was in Indian Creek in 2014. I, I know it was 2014 because of what this woman said. 
And she had been climbing. I can't remember who it was, but she had been climbing in El Shaltan, you know, where people go down and they rent rooms and they all hang out together. And she said, what do you think of El Shaltan? I go, well, you know, I it's okay, but I, I really kind of liked it when there was nobody there. It was wilderness. And I said, now, you God, they even have discos. And she looked at me and she said, Jim, it's 2014. We called them clubs. <laughs> <laughs> but what I do now in the last couple of years, um, I had this young guy, Tad McRae, that uh, he's uh, 42 years younger than me. And he's my primary climbing partner in Patagonia. And the last couple of years, few years, he's come down after guiding on uh, Aconcagua. And I've got a root uh, mountain picked out. And I found the way in. And we go in and do a first ascent of these little mountains, little granitic peaks. And then the, the, the biggest part, uh, problem is getting to them and finding a way in. Right. We did one called Cerro Chueco a couple of years ago. Beautiful little nine pitches of climbing up to about 510. Uh, but uh, glacier could travel to get to it and, you know, rainforest to get to the glacier. And, you know, it's just spectacular. You get to the peak. No one's ever been on it before. You can see it from the road, from the Carretero Stroud, but no one had ever figured out. Well, there's no climbing pressure up there. Right. And when we got to the top on a perfect day, a condor circling above us, and we're looking out into wilderness area that no one's ever been, I thought, you know, it doesn't get much better than this. But here's a funny story about Tad. In 1976, I did Tori Egger, and I wrote an article published an article in National Geographic about the climb. And I was a young, you know, impecunious climber and uh, didn't have a real job. I was working as a guide. So I thought I'd go around the uh, western United States and do some slideshows to make some money. So I got a, a list of all these retail stores around the country, and I made phone calls. And I called up this guy, Mick Mead, who uh, was the owner of a what became a chain of stores in the San Diego, uh, L.A. area called A16. And he said, sure, I'll do a slideshow with you. Why don't we do one in uh, my – I'm opening up a new store in San Diego. You can be my entertainment. So I said, okay. And I show up in San Diego, and he's, he's grand opening. So he, uh, because of that, he did a lot of advertising, and people were showing up in droves. I ended up with about 500 people. It was outdoor Sydney. So he had his beautiful young daughter. She was 16, and I'm going, oh, my gosh, she's a striking woman, girl. And he had her uh, <clears throat> setting up chairs, bringing up more chairs because of all the people who were showing up for the slideshow. Well, that beautiful young 16-year-old is Tad McRae's mother. There you go. That's a generational gap. Then. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, not too long ago, I was doing the, the uh, Evolution Traverse with a, tw- a 22-year-old from um, Europe and George Lowe and, and uh, this 22-year-old. And he had his 46-year-old father, and he was a very strong guy. They'd done, done on cap together. We're doing the uh, Evolution Traverse together. And he goes, Jim, you know you're old enough to be my dad's dad. And I said, Ben. Your grandmother never told you about me? <laughs> <laughs> I love climbing with really young climbers because it, it uh, I love their enthusiasm. Well, you know, Tad McRae, 
He's a big guy. He's a big, strong guy. He was a, a, a rower on the uh, on the eight you know, sculling team mm-hmm. uh, from the University of Washington, won the national championship. I mean, he's 6'3", and it's all muscle. His nickname is Too Big to Fail. Right. And uh, I love his enthusiasm. He reminds me of me 40 years ago. We'll get into the rainforest, and I get some of my older friends, and they get into the rainforest, and they go, oh, this is really, oh, this is horrible, you know, and, he gets in there and he goes, hey, this is kind of neat, you know. And uh, it, uh, I think that climbing with, uh, for me, with real young people, people, you know, that are as young as my grandchildren, um, you know, I can I can mentor them a little bit with some words of wisdom. and But um, they really, you know, re-energize me. They, they kind of charge my battery. Right. And I love their enthusiasm, and that, that's why I'm, I've never been a, I don't think I'm a curmudgeon, I, I, you know, because I, I appreciate, I, you know, people, you know, some some old client, old-time climbers go, well, it's not like it used to be, it's, oh my God, and, you know. No, it's not like it used to be. It's different a little bit, but that doesn't mean it's worse or better or it's different. You know, when you think about life, the only thing that really never changes is the fact that things will change. Right. And you better be able to adjust to it or you're going to be unhappy. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that Tori Egger climb. I yeah. Mean, it, it, it's like, it's kind of the first on the uh, the list of when when you look up Jim Donini. Um, yeah. You know, and, it, and it, it was a significant climb. And is that the one where you were following uh, part of Maestri's line? Yes. Su- his supposed line. Yes. Um. And, uh, yeah, so I wanted to maybe talk a little bit about your sort of involvement in that controversy in terms of what you guys okay, found well, up there. Okay, well, so... Because I've had, we had Kelly on when his book came out. Well, um, I got John Bragg uh, to go down with me in, I think it was 1974. And, um, you know, the uh, the magazine that was really the credible magazine in the, in the world then was Mountain Magazine out of England. Mm-hmm. Ken Wilson was the editor, and they, they were... Uh, all of a sudden, it's all about Patagonia and these beautiful towers. I mean, you know, the pictures are incredible. You go, oh, my God. So we decided to go down there, and we went down, and I'd done a lot of reading as much as possible. And we knew that there's the three Tories together, Cerro Tory, Tory Egger, and Cerro Stanhart in a line. And we knew that the Cerro uh, Tory had been climbed, but it turns out in a very controversial way. But uh, that's Tori Egger and uh, in the middle and Cyril Stanhart were unclined. And Cyril Stanhart on the end was the smaller of the three. And we decided to try that. And we we nearly, we would have made the first ascent, but a stove went bad. And we, and we couldn't melt snow and get water. And we had to go down and waste, wasted two days and got back and just got to the summit ridge as the storm was coming in. So we didn't make it, but we almost did. But during that time, as you're hiking into the Cirque, at the base, of, you go underneath Cerro Torre towards Torre Egger, Cerro Stanhart. I was hiking up that one day with a British friend of mine, and it was a kind of a stormy day, and all of a sudden I looked over and I saw a fox. And we're miles from the nearest blade of grass, you know, we're on a glacier, and there's a fox. So I went over to check out why it was there, and it was the, he was eating these remains. It turned out it was the body of Tony Egger. You know, he had uh, disappeared when he was with Maestri in 1959 at the base of the climb. His body was covered up with snow. And here it was 16 years later. 
he had come in the glacier downhill a couple thousand vertical feet and several kilometers and where the glacier flattened out he melted out and the fox was eating his remains and i went oh my god so we took the remains and we buried them under some rocks and i took a carabiner from his body and uh went home and i thought let's do tori egger which was the mountain next to cerro tori it means Eggers Tower. It was named after Tony Egger after he died. And um, at that time, there was a big controversy about the 1959 climb with Maestri and Egger. Mountain Magazine, under Ken Wilson's direction, were saying he simply could not have done it. Because the, the storm that they were in, the, the, the quality, the, the difficulty of the climbing, uh, he was the, the Egger and Maestri were up for six days in a storm, and, and they came back down. And Egger was killed on a descent. Maestri said that his body was hit by an ice avalanche, and, and he just fell to the glacier. And by the time Maestri got to the glacier, it was snowing. His body was covered. He was rescued by his support team. He was nearly dead. But he said that yeah, they did the mountain. They did the climb. But Mountain Magazine said, no, no, they couldn't have. Especially when Maestri came back in 1970 or 71 with a huge team and did the compressor route and put in, used a, uh, a pneumatic bolt gun and, and bolted, uh, put hundreds of bolts in. And uh, so they said, well, why would a guy who, who did this more difficult route on, on Cerro Torre with one other partner in complete Alpine style. And if they had done that in 1959, it would have been the most amazing climb in the history of climbing. Yeah, given, right. given the state of the art of climbing in sure. 1959 and the uh, level, the amount of the equipment they had. So why would he come back in 19, you know, years later and, and do it in a completely different style? Anyway, I, <laughs> Maestri, Danini, he's Italian. I said, hey, the guy's a good guy. He probably did it. And, you know, Maestro also had uh, done a lot of climbing in Dolomite, and he was a good climber. Right. So it turns out that uh, the people that have – and, you know, you've got to believe uh, climbers because there's not always photographic evidence, and so you, you trust somebody. So I went down there thinking that Maestri and Edgar had climbed Cerro Torre. And we noticed that they did their line. They went to the Cola Conquest, which is the coal between Cerro Torre and Torriegger. So our thought was, well, we'll just climb their line to the Cola Conquest. And then when we get to the coal, instead of doing Cerro Torre, we'll do Torriegger. And that's what we did. And the first 1,000 feet, the, the, the about 2,500 vertical feet to the coal, and it, it's in three sections. There, there's a 1,000-foot really steep section, then a triangular-shaped ice field, then a lower angle section up to the, a corner, and then a traverse from uh, that corner into the coal. And from below, it looks like the first section is going to be hard because it's steep. The second section going up to the corner is going to be easier because it's lower angle. And then you look at from below, the 400-foot the traverse into the coal looks, looks blank, and it looks really hard. And you're thinking, well... They did it, and we're we're uh, Yosemite climbers. You know, we can. It must be. And the Maestri said that when they got to the traverse, it was difficult artificial aid. And we well, we can do that. Sure. So we. It was like following history. The first thousand feet up to the uh, triangular shaped ice field. It was uh, there was all these remnants 
pieces of rope, wooden wedges and cracks, a bolt or two, a piton, artifacts. There must have been a hundred artifacts from their from their climb. They left all the stuff behind, ropes hanging there. And for young climbers like us, you know, who were in awe of uh, our predecessors, we thought, my God, this is like being in a history museum. And we got to that end of that thousand foot section right below the snow field, the ice field, just as a storm was coming in. And we noticed there was a ledge there and there were some packs buried and we chopped a little bit and it was like an equipment dump. And we wrapped off. And we didn't get, the weather that year was really bad. We didn't get back on the climb for six weeks. We started thinking about it though. The last pitch going up to the uh, equipment dump was a f- totally fixed rope. And there was a lot of pitons in for, they aided it. And about every other piton, there was a, a carabiner and the rope was clove hitched to the carabiner. And I thought, you know, what's that all about? It doesn't make any sense. But anyway, we finally get back up there. And uh, then we go from there all the way to the Cold Conquest. And after a 1,000 feet with all those artifacts, all the way from that point, another 15, 1,800 vertical feet to the coal, zero. <laughs> Nothing. Right. Not even a rappel anchor. And uh, that is pretty strong evidence that no one had been there. But what they made it more conclusive to me was he described it as it looks like from below, like the second section from the coal, I mean, from their high point, to the, the traverse into the coal was going to be easier. It was actually kind of hard. You know how granite slabs, <laughs> right. it's not that easy. And then he, he said that the uh, traverse into the coal, which from below looks blank. Well, we got to that corner and we turned, uh, and then we got around the corner and we looked. There was a hidden ledge system going into the coal. He had a few uh, hard moves of free climbing, then you're on the ledge, it's fourth class. And uh, he described it as very difficult, and you can't even see it until you're right on top of it. Right. So based on those things, I realized then that the Maestri had not only not climbed Cerro Torre in 1959, but they hadn't gotten to the Cole Conquest. That's my story. Right. <laughs> you And you, you went on on that trip to climb Torre Eger. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. And we got to the Cole, and we bivied, and we didn't ha- and a storm came in. And we were out in the open, and uh, it was not so nice, and we had to retreat. We went back up later, and we got to the coal again. We, we had, Right below the coal, in a more sheltered part, we put, we put in and chopped out a ledge and put a, what was called a Willens box that they used on Everest, uh, Don Willens designed, and that was our high point uh, camp. And then from there, directly above the coal, uh, Torrey Eggers overhanging rime ice. You can't climb it. So we traversed below the coal to the right where we got some overhanging granite. And I led that pitch. It took me six hours. It was the most difficult aid climbing I'd ever done. And uh, I had to do a pendulum off a, a three-quarter inch angle, only a third of the way in, and finally lasso a flake. I mean, it was epic. <laughs> and, I, I, and I left a fixed rope there. And then the next day we went back and jumarred up the, above that pitch and went to the summit, got to the summit in a storm, and came back down, and uh, and we got it done. Right. And um, it was definitely the hardest alpine climb I'd ever done. And Torrey Eger, uh is still considered by most people to be the hardest peak in the Western Hemisphere to get to the top of. Yeah, yeah, it's a sort of a seminal point of my climbing, and it was one of my first alpine, real alpine successes. Mm-hmm. And what was the total time you 
were down there for that climb. Hmm? I mean, what was the total amount of time you were in Patagonia for that climb? Three months. Yeah. Because the weather was really horrendous. <laughs> and uh, we had a six-week storm where we couldn't really climb. Right. And A lot of time uh, to think we, about the, the fixed line and the clove-hitched uh, you I know, don't, yeah, right. you know, I still don't understand that. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I'm never going to understand right. that. But you also saw right at their appointment, uh, equipment dump, a, a rope draped over a rock, around a rock, uh, and, and cut halfway down. And it was like, and it looked like the same diameter as the rope that I found on Tony Anger's body. Hmm. But I don't know. Right. I'll never know what happened. Well, and the thing about like all that information is that that wasn't, I mean, you're like, a third of the way up Saratori at that point. Right. So they claim to have not only gotten to the coal, I mean, not at that point, at the coal conquest. So, <clears throat> I mean, then whatever else they claim to do above that would have been even more difficult. Than, well, you know, yeah. that was another part yeah. of it. Edgar, uh, uh Maestri said, well, you know, you get to the coal conquest, you can't see it from here, but there's a 60 degree uh, ice runnel going to the summit and uh, my my partner was the best ice climber in Europe, Tony right. Egger. Well, I got to the Coal Conquest, and that 60-degree ice model just does not exist. Right. You know, Barolo Garabati, and um, I went back finally and, 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 and did that. And um, Like in the 90s or yeah, the 2000s? Uh, There's a lot. I mean, it was years and years afterwards. Yeah, yeah. when he first went back with Colin yeah. Haley and uh, – it was later than that then. If it was yeah, Colin, and then but. they went back into the Torrey Traverse. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he had he was the first to climb ever, uh, Cerro Torrey from the out of the coal, and the climbing out of the coal to the summit is very difficult. Right, there is no sixty degree ice runnel right. hidden there. It doesn't exist. Yeah, with modern equipment, it's very with difficult. modern equipment. Yeah. It's, with yeah. guys like uh, Colin Haley, mm-hmm. Rollo Garabati, you know, I mean, brilliant climbers barely get up it. So what what was your? I mean, at the time. You know, if you came down and basically, you know, told whoever was listening, like, yeah, we don't think that yeah. Maestri did it. I mean, did it, what did it do to you personally in terms of, you know, thinking about like the 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 sort of code of honor in the mountains, this guy that maybe you had some respect for, you know, I mean, well, it's kind of like, it, I no, mean, it sort of stole know, this, this very important it, ascent. To me, it made the, uh, it's like the exception that proves the rule. Right. And I realized there's been three or four, there's only been a few I uh, that uh, there were fabrications and they were done by people who were well-respected. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why they believed them. You know, if Joe Blow went up there and said, well, I did that, and oh, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. But a guy with his credentials, people believed them. And, uh, you know, I, I'm... Uh, cynical by nature when it comes to the you know the human species mm-hmm. so-called intelligent ape <laughs> and uh i realized that there's always going to be that happening but when re-examining the, the history of climbing and seeing how how infrequent that is right i still believe that climbers are have a code of honor and i believe people when they say something i believe maestri I found out he didn't, but that was such a rare exception that it it almost uh, solidifies the code of honor right. in my mind. Right, if that makes any sense. Yeah, totally. And and did you have once you, when you found um, uh, Tony Egger's body? Yeah, which could, must have been just shocking and wild, and 
Yeah, and, uh, you know, actually, we got really criticized. When we found his body, he'd been there uh, 19 years, Mm -hmm. uh, let's see, 19, 16 years, 17 years coming down the glacier, and he was broken up, and, you know, there was a boot with his fibula and tibula sticking out, and and a rope, and an old ice axe, and and I thought, if I ever been uh, die in the mountains like that, I want my body to rest there. So we moved what we found. We didn't find everything, and buried it under some rocks, and came out. Mm-hmm. And when word got back to Europe, the uh, he's from Austria, mm-hmm. and Austria is a very Catholic country, and and we were roundly criticized in the Austrian press. Why didn't you bring his body out for proper Christian interment? Right. Never occurred to us. It never right. occurred. Um, you know, I'm a card carrying atheist, but it never occurred to me. But that solidified my desire to want to climb Torjäger. I said, you know, we come back next year. Let's do the real deal. Let's climb Torjäger in honor of this guy, Tony Egger. Mm-hmm. And I put his carabiner on the summit. Okay. Well, the summit's an ice mushroom. And I don't think anyone's ever seen that. It probably melted down into the ice. It, it'll be there for a God knows how long. You know, you have a relationship with Michael Kennedy going way back to right. um, to Lay Talk and uh, our, our close friends. What what was your, did you weigh in or was did you have an expressed opinion about um, when Hayden and Jason Kruk uh, chopped the compressor? It's kind of like know, weird, it, funny to old me, news now. it was like a Greek tragedy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's interesting that uh, Hayden was this brilliant rock climber. And then he, he went started going to Patagonia. Julie, uh, he really was hoping Hayden would just stick to rock climbing. Right. Because that's a, you know, pure rock climbing is a lot safer than alpine climbing. And she kind of blamed me for getting him to go to Patagonia. <laughs> I talked to him a couple of times, but not really. I mean, he's. and uh, That's like blaming you for a wave hitting the beach. Well, you, you know, know like hey, Jim, hey, Jim, yeah. <laughs> why'd you talk to him about Patagonia? <laughs> and he became a brilliant alpinist. Now, look at the uh, Latok Cirque. I told you about, you know, the three most magnificent 7,000-meter peaks in the world are right next to each other in terms of technical difficulty and Latok 1, Ogre 2, Ogre. Now, those three peaks from the north side, from the Latok side, have been tried by world-class climbing teams, the three of them together, probably 50 times, and uh, with no successes, only one. And that was a new route done by Kyle Dempster and uh, Hayden Kennedy on the on the that side of the ogre a few years ago. So he became this brilliant alpinist, and I know that both Michael and Julie were. Oh my gosh, you know, that's such a dangerous venue. And then, uh, then, then the next uh, year, a few two later, Kyle Dempster disappears on the north face of Ogre Two. And uh, Hayden had fallen in love and, and there was a brilliant young uh, woman, rock climber, and moved to Bozeman. They set up house together and decided he was going to retire from, you know, world-class alpinism. And uh, I know Michael and Julie were very happy about that. And then to have this tragic thing happen, you know, the crazy, tragic the circumstances of the death and the avalanche you know i lost a son by mm-hmm. the way we was 20 years old in an accident and uh so i'm one of those 
parents in the world around the world, uh, not the many of us, thank God, who have lost children. So I could really relate to losing my son Montana at the age of twenty, and then and then losing Hayden, her only son. He was such a brilliant climber, but not all, more than that, a brilliant young man, thoughtful, talented. You know, anybody would die to have a son like that. And, you know, I I went to the memorial and I talked to, uh, and of course, uh, Michael and Julie knew that I'd lost my son. And I said, you know, it's, it's, it's something that shouldn't happen to a parent. You know, we're supposed to go before they go. But life isn't fair. Life is, life is just what it is. And you have to deal, and it you you know. And I was honest with them, and I said it's not going to go away. It'll lessen with time. So my son would be thirty five, thirty six now, and I, I I sometimes think now I'd, I'd probably be you know taking care of the grandkids, mm-hmm. and that's not going to ever happen for me. It's not going to happen for them. But you know the the one thing that Michael and Julie have is because of the people they are. They have an incredible support group because they're such fine people and that's important that's really important that uh you have people to fall back on people that you care about and that you uh trust and uh and they do it's not going to ever be easy but uh it it does the pain uh you know becomes less sharp right time but uh there's no answers and then and then people will say well, in in, uh, in Hayden's case, you know, he wasn't climbing; he was skiing. And like Kyle Dempster and Scott Adamson, I, I know uh, they were young in their mid thirties and they were climbing. And and people go, "What a what a waste!" Uh, you know, why why do people put themselves into this position? And I have an answer for that. I really don't. And then you know, some some of the things they're saying, I find kind of trite. Mm-hmm. Well, at least they're doing something they love, and they, they you know, they're doing something. You know, that, I don't like that answer. It's like when there's ever a gun massacre, they say, "Well, thoughts and prayers." Mm-hmm. The two, three worst words in the English language. We'll give our thoughts and prayers. That's bullshit. And uh, I don't have answers for these things, and and uh, I, I I wouldn't be able to really comfort a parent. When their son died climbing, I'd say, well, they wanted to do it, and they did it, and uh, a bad thing happened, and that's part of life. Right. And if I die climbing, (laughs) I'm going to die, but probably, uh, yeah, I I don't know. I have no answer. Well, I mean, you just mentioned, yeah, your your death and your survival in a way. I mean, we kind of started somewhere around there in terms of, talking about luck and talking about what it takes to get through the mountains and, and the luck part of it being a, a big part of that. But, and we talked a little bit about age. Is it, is it something that you think about in terms of, of, uh, I mean, you must think about it in terms of, of coming eventually to the end of your career and then the end of your life. Probably the hardest thing for human beings is to face mortality. Sure. And that's what separates us. From I think from other animals, and I'm sure that I don't think most other are a spe- I, We're just an animal. We're a species of ape, but we're probably separated by because we know that we're more, uh, mortal. 
I think that most animals don't really realize that. And I think that's why that's one of the reasons why we have religion. Because, hey, there's got to be something beyond just spending a short time on this planet and then you're gone. And so humankind has come up with religion as an answer. Oh, yeah, but then you go to heaven and blah, blah, blah. Well, sitting on a cloud playing a harp is, doesn't appeal to me, but <laughs> if I was a Mormon, even having my own planet when I die doesn't appeal to me. I don't, like I said, I'm an atheist. Mm-hmm. I grew uh, I was raised Catholic, but uh, the the cynical part of me, I, I just can't find the evidence for religion. But I know I'm going to die, and uh, and it could be in the mountains, probably not. You know, I never worry about uh, dying in the mountains. It never occurs to me. It never, I never really think about it. Sometimes when I'm in situations like on late talk or I've been in situations where I'm thinking, oh, this isn't good. Now we, we might not sur- survival is not assured. <laughs> right. But uh, I never go into a climb thinking that. Right. And I, I think more than I think about now about my own uh, end of my life is the end of my climbing I did 4,000 vertical feet yesterday, or two days ago, with boots on on hard snow. And so I'm still performing okay, mm-hmm. you know, aerobically for my age. And I can still climb decently for my age. And so I can still do this. But I'm a, I'm a realist. I know that at se- I'll be turned 76 during the climb. And well, well wait a minute, you know, I, I, there, there aren't too many more years. Mm-hmm. You know, my my wife, Angela, uh, found an old, uh, the uh, college I went to, LaSalle University, uh, a number of years ago when I was 40, 38, they tracked me down and uh, interviewed me, and she read the interview, and I was 38 years old, and I, I remember saying in the interview, well, I'm 38, I'll probably uh, give this up by the time I'm 40, 45. <laughs> 30, 35 years later, 37 years right. later, I'm still I'm still doing it. Well, you know, you have to be physically able to do it, and you have to have the desire. So, I, you know, I've mentioned the fact that um, I stayed in shape because I haven't been injured and I haven't had joint issues. So I've been able to maintain the physical attributes you need to climb, but I've also maintained the desire to do it. Right. And I, that's a motivational thing that not everybody has, and I, I can't explain that. So to finish up, you know, looking back, you know, we throw around this word lifer with uh, with folks who climb their entire lives. Um, I mean, you're you're definitely like you said, the barometer in a lot of ways for that. Um, so I had barometers for me. <laughs> yeah. So um, if you could sort of sum it up, I mean, what do you think the gifts or the looking back, the positives that climbing gave you for, I mean, how long have you been climbing? 60 years? When did you start? Yeah, well, 1964. Right. 55 years. Yeah. So, you know, if someone said, well, why did you spend all this time and you know, maybe someone really cynical said, you know, you waste your life just like climbing mountain after mountain. What are well, the gifts that you see came out of it for you? You know, it's kept me healthy. You know, I think about uh, when people worry about the dangers of climbing. The biggest danger you have in longevity is not being healthy by falling into a, uh, a situation where you eat too much, drink too much and don't exercise. 
And you're far more likely to die young from doing that. Or to, to look, I look around at people my age who are uh, riding around a retail store in carts with an oxygen bottle or, you know, barely able to walk up a hill. It's not only how long you live, it's the quality of your life. And to me, part of the quality of my life is to have the physical part of me as well as the mental part. And I, I wouldn't want to be a sedentary, out-of-shape person that's just is sitting in front of a TV watching baseball games. So it's the quality of life. Now, but more important than that, well, I, I explained the exploratory urge. I'm still exploring, going to places. I went to, I did a, a, a new climb in, with George Lowe in Patagonia last year. And it was a really beautiful approach that no one had ever really done before. And the peak had done before. We did a new route on it, an easy route. It was easy. And we got to the top, and I had a little urn of ashes from Jim Bridwell that Peggy Bridwell gave me. This is this a few months ago. So she wanted me to spread those ashes in Patagonia. So here are the top of this little route that we did. And I'm just getting ready to, in fact, I went like that with the ashes, and, and, and George Lowe took a photo. You can see the ashes coming out. Right before I did that, a condor flew underneath with the white top of its wings flashing in the sun. And then I let the ashes go. And, you know, of course, Bridwell's nickname was The Bird, and I thought that was super appropriate. But that reminds me it's the people that I've climbed with and the friendships that I've had and still have with people over a half century it's the most important thing. A guy, my friend Dirk from, he's listening to Bozeman now, just the other day, he's quite a bit younger, but he's, you know, moving on in age. And he said, when I first started climbing, it was what I climbed. Then it became, as I got a little bit older, where it was. Now it's who I'm with, you know. And uh, and that's part of it. The, the bond, the uh, camaraderie, that I first noticed with a Special Forces A-Team has continued on with my Alpine partners, and it's become a very special thing. And uh, that's probably one of the things that's kept my motivation. Well, that's awesome, it. Jim. Uh, Thanks a lot for sitting down. This yeah, has it was been, fun. Yes, it's been tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, for me to, to talk to you and, and um, get to know you. We've sort of orbited one another for, <laughs> for years, at least down in the creek and in the rock yeah. climbing Rock well, good. World. I enjoyed this. Thanks a lot for uh, putting it together, Chris. Yeah, and re- and good luck on uh, on your trip this summer. It sounds amazing. Yeah, I'll let you know. I'll give you I'll give you a blow by blow when I get back. Oh, cool. Sounds good, Jim. Okay. Thanks again. You bet. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Jim for sitting down. Man, in 55 years, a lot of highs and lows. I think that uh, those lows, frankly, might have killed a lesser person. So I think it's a testament to uh, Jim's spirit that not only has he kept going, stayed positive, stayed motivated, not become a curmudgeon, which is nice and maybe surprising. Hell, I'm more than halfway there, and he's got 20-some years on me. Anyway, pretty heavy chat there in the end. I hope you guys were there with us in the depths. But now I'm really hoping to run into Jim in the creek this fall. I think you guys probably are too, actually. So look for him. Okay, remember you can help out the Enormacast by going to enormacast.com and clicking on the Help Out tab. 
seeing what you can do to further the empire eight years on. Still needs furthering. Still are lands to be conquered. So help me out with that. Reviews, liking the uh, Facebook page, stuff like that. Easy stuff. You can also donate to the podcast at the website at enormacast.com if you feel the urge. Urges pretty much carry this whole thing. Urges. All right, when you're out there climbing this fall, this September is finally starting to cool off here. Is it cooling off where you live? Anyway, don't forget the urge to check your knots. Come far, pilgrim. Feels like far. Were it worth the trouble? Huh? What trouble?